You'd sit absolutely still. I can't do that. <laughs> the CMU Podcast, in association with Seven Digital. This week, YouTube, SFX and Irving Azoff. It's the CMU Podcast, looking back at the last week in the music business. I'm Andy Malt. In a small room with me, smaller than usual, is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris Cook. Hello. So we've not got a table this week. So we're no, this of... is all a bit Frost Nixon at the moment. <laughs> I mean, you know, as in, a... not that I'm suggesting they'll be making films about this conversation in years to come. I think they might. They probably will. They probably will. Uh, so it's sort of like a chat show format, but with some very large microphones between us. So we're in a slightly different room, but don't worry, we are in a studio. It's just a different studio. We're not in an office <laughs> like we were a few weeks ago with a police helicopter hovering above, <laughs> interfering with the sound. So although it's slightly weird for us, hopefully it will be the usual top quality sound audio as we delve into the last seven days in the music industry. Yeah, so that disclaimer done. What have you been up to? I haven't done anything. <laughs> You've written lots of news stories for the have, CMU but, Daily. But I do that every week. Top news stories this week. Sometimes it, I do it for fun, even <laughs> when I don't need to. Yeah, at the weekend, yeah, you uh, yeah. <laughs> get your laptop out and write stories. We never publish them, but you write them and you read them and you proof them for the enjoyment because that's how much you'd like writing. Yeah, I love it. About the world of music and yeah. the music industry. I went to the Nordoff Robbins Christmas quiz. Yes. Which is a thing. It is. People might not think it's a thing. I can confirm. It is definitely a thing. It's quite a long thing. You were there quite late. It is quite a long night. Yes, you might think, oh, a Christmas quiz, that's 40 minutes in the pub. Nope, <laughs> it's a whole suite of a hotel on Kensington High Street and lots of teams. So like the record companies are there and the agencies and various music companies are there. And we didn't have our own table. We weren't there as CMU because... Each team had well, 10 people. And yeah. There are 10 people at CMU. So it was basically the music media or the music business media, I suppose. <laughs> all, all the journalists that were left. <laughs> <laughs> so that was us and Record of the Day and Music Week. And then Dave from Pro Sound News was there. But that's because that's a sister title to Music Week, really. So we all got together and we competed in the Nordoff Robbins Christmas Quiz, which is very and hard. But, I mean, as music journalists, I mean, the music journalists of three publications brought together who collectively have been covering the music business for a very, very long time. The amount of knowledge that must have been on that table, I assume you did very well. Did you win it? <laughs> we didn't win it. Oh, uh, second. Warner Music won it. Ah, uh, second. Uh, we didn't come second. Third. I don't actually know who came second or third. We were tenth. We're not going to go all the way down. We were tenth. Was that last? 22 teams. So about halfway. So we're about halfway. Uh, at the end of round two, we were in the lead. Oh, right. Although that's due to a technicality because there was a thing where if one member of your team went up on stage and answered all the questions on their own rather than with 10 of you, then you got five times the points. And our team was the first team to send someone up to do that. So we were we were leading on a technicality. But uh, Dave from Pro Sound News was very good at quizzes. If he hadn't been there, it would have been rather embarrassing. I did say at the start, is there going to be a pop litigation round? <laughs> in a round which is all about pop stars in court, I, I would have been in my element. But there wasn't. It was more recognising music that was being played and then answering questions about it. So I only really came into my own in the last round, which was the shit 80s music round. So all the sort of, uh, well, we, back in the 1980s, when around about Christmas, you would have novelty records like uh, the Birdie song by the Tweets or Keith Harrison, Orville. And I was pretty damn good at recognising all of those songs. Yeah, that, does, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. <laughs> Whereas the rest, I got a few. But uh, Dave from Pro Sound News and Paul from Record of the Day. James from Music Week was very good at the X Factor round, although he seemed quite keen for no one outside, no one to know that. But if look at you sabotaging <laughs> the competition. But if you if you're looking for someone to take part in a quiz that involves X Factor knowledge, James from Music Week was very good at that. And then Tiago from the CMU team, who was also there, he came into his own on the Abifa Classics round. So, to be fair to him, it does sound like most of the questions involved quite a good knowledge of very specifically British music that he would not have 
experienced. Or even if it wasn't British music, as in it wasn't British artists, it was things like UK chart positions or UK Christmas number ones and stuff like that. So yes, uh, you probably did have an advantage if you had grown up experiencing music through British radio, etc. Anyway, so that, that was a thing. Uh, hopefully it raised lots of money for Nordoff Robbins. I, I bought a raffle ticket, didn't win, didn't win the PlayStation. Disappointed um, going. I was uh, there was a, a a set of Beats headphones that you could win, and I was ca- I was kind of hoping I would win those because, as you know, I've been slagging off Beats headphones <laughs> ever since the mere concept was first mentioned by Dr. Dre. Did you want to do a YouTube video of you hitting them with a hammer? <laughs> well, either yes, smashing them up, <laughs> or I could actually use some Beats headphones. So rather <laughs> rather than slagging them off based <laughs> on my assumption that Beats headphones are rubbish. Dave from Pro Sound News confirmed that they are rubbish, and he should know because he writes for a thing called Pro Sound News. So that sounds like the sort of thing that he would know. Yeah. He confirmed that I'm right to slag off Beats headphones, but I must admit this is an admission now on the CME podcast. I've never actually used Beats headphones, so they might be brilliant. So if I'd won a pair, I could listen to them, confirm to my suspicions, and then smash them up and put the video on YouTube. But I didn't win. My ticket was not drawn for that. Other than that, it was a good evening. A good evening. They may not have been a pop litigation round, but maybe we'll do one especially for you on this podcast later, by which, I mean, we're going to talk about some litigation. We're going to talk about some pop litigation. Well, one piece of pop litigation mainly, but you can ask me all the questions you like about that specific dispute that's in court, but that's coming up later, I believe. Yes, yes, we will be discussing uh, Irving Azoff or his company, Global Music Rights, suing the entire US radio industry. Every single radio station. uh, That's that's fun. Everybody working in radio, every DJ, every head of music, the entire American radio industry. Yes, and we'll also be talking about SFX's post-bankruptcy rebrand. Yeah, you introed it as SFX in the intro, I noticed. This week, SFX. But it's not SFX. It's not SFX. There is no SFX to talk about. But no one knows what lifestyle is. You immediately I mean, other than all the people who've read about it. In the CMU Daily. Yeah, you immediately off brand before before the jingle had even finished playing so uh, more on the, what's it called live style. live style not live style oh it could be live style it could be live style i mean it's a live music company so i made an assumption but yeah but you know what assumptions are so uh yeah well we'll return to that debate in the middle bit of the podcast maybe so that's all to come but first let's talk about youtube and all the lovely money that it's pouring into the music industry's uh, sink Sink? Yeah. I hope they've got a plug in that sink. I, I believe they have. Otherwise, all that money will flow into the sewers, and we don't want that. Yes, and if you ask the music industry, the music industry will tell you that it's really not enough water to fill the sink. Certainly. So the plug needs to be... Shall we, like, actually say what's happening? You could wash... You could wash a... I've gone down a route with this that's I've lost control I want to run it. with this metaphor. You <laughs> could wash a plate, but not a large jug in the sink into which the YouTube money is Who's pouring. the last large jug? Well, the large jug... <laughs> there isn't enough money. There isn't enough water to wash a large jug. <laughs> All right, then. Perhaps we should drop this metaphor <laughs> and get on with the actual story. YouTube... YouTube... Has this year... The Google video site, YouTube, just in case. We don't want things to be absolutely clear you on this podcast. YouTube has this year sent a billion dollars over to the music industry. So we know this, or at least we know that this is what YouTube is saying. Yes. <laughs> because earlier this week, the chief digital business, chief something. Chief business officer. The chief business officer. What does that even mean? The chief, <laughs> the chief business officer of YouTube, Mr. Robert, what's his surname? Kinkle. Kinkle. How did I forget that? It's quite a festive sounding name, isn't it? It's quite good that yeah, we're approaching yeah. Christmas. Robert Kinkle wrote a blog on the YouTube blog or the Google blog somewhere basically saying, well, he started off by saying, this has been a good year for the music industry. After years of decline, now the music industry's back in growth, which immediately gets the pedant inside me saying, you mean the record industry? (laughs) (laughs) Because the music industry has not been through a decade of decline, but the record industry has, the recorded music industry has. But as we have talked about on the podcast before, last year actually was the first year pretty much since the start of the 2000s that the recorded music market went back into growth and this year we're expecting when the figures come out in the spring actually the growth is even more significant this year than it was in 2015 so the recorded music market is back in growth so that's what Robert Kinkle was starting off by saying yeah the music industry they're all doing really well again and then he conceded there was a concession Mm. where he said that's mainly being driven by the subscription streaming services like what YouTube doesn't offer 
Google do, I suppose, but I don't think it's Google Play <laughs> that's bringing in all this streaming subscription money. But he conceded that it is the subscription services that are bringing all the money. But then he went on to say, but haha, it's not just the subscription services. Look at all the advertising money, the lovely, music industry. Lovely ad money. All the advertising income that the music industry, the recorded music industry, is now benefiting from. And you know who's the main generator of ad income for the music industry? Bloody YouTube. Oh, yeah. One billion dollars. In the last 12 months, is what he was saying, has been paid to the music industry. And bearing in mind that prior to that blog post, Robert Kinkle and all his mates over at YouTube, whenever they've been talking about how much money they've paid into the music industry, they've always used the figure of three billion since 2007. Okay, and they've been using that figure for a while now. So the fact that they're now saying a billion in the last 12 months, well, you have to assume that A, that means 4 billion in total, at least. But also, if it was 3 billion more or less from 2007 to 2015, and then it's a whole billion in the last 12 months, well, things are looking up. The music industry is saved. The music industry. The record industry. <laughs> the record industry is saved because YouTube is selling lots of advertising and all those ads that um, they make more money from the pre-rolls, the ones that play before the videos, but they nearly always have a skip. And I can't, <laughs> I'm assuming no one's watching a three-minute ad. There's a, a lot more that you're forced to watch them now. That's an increasing thing. Well, certainly on Vivo channels, you're much more yeah. likely to be forced to watch the ad. But obviously, there's also the little banner ads that pop up. There's a little bit of income coming in from them. So anyway, YouTube has paid a billion dollars to the music industry in the last year. So, well, the conclusion of the blog post was, yay, everything's great. Momentum. He talked about momentum. Yeah, a lot of momentum. The online is now taking more and more money from TV, and that's going to be a trend that continues. And so there's just going to be more and more money out there for the music industry. And then he was saying, just like sort of the traditional media industry, the future of the music industry is probably that half the money comes in from subscriptions and then half the money will come in from advertising and that's the future. And we're really happy that YouTube is leading on the advertising side. Way music. But of course, the, uh, well, maybe I was inferring it. I think it was probably implied. <laughs> Basically, what the blog post was saying is 2016 has been the year where the music industry became more and more aggressive in its opposition to YouTube and the YouTube business model, and particularly its licensing model and the safe harbors that allow YouTube to operate an opt-out rather than opt-in streaming service. It has been the year when artists and songwriters and labels and publishers and managers have been writing op-eds in newspapers, writing blog posts and shouting, saying YouTube is screwing everything up. So basically the blog post seemed to be a little bit of a... We've given you a billion dollars. Shut up moaning. What more do you want? <laughs> and so then the, the music did, industry said exactly what more it wanted. <laughs> it did not stop the, well, the record industry again from moaning. In fact, the record industry, through its uh, global trade body, the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, which represents mainly the major record companies worldwide, they, uh, they got another moan in very, very quickly yeah. indeed. I think within a couple of hours of the blog post being posted, the IFBI put out their statement. Which basically said, oh, a billion, how lovely. Really not enough. Really not enough. Well, they started off by sort of questioning where that figure even came from. Yeah, because, I mean, they, whenever YouTube says, oh, we've handed over this much money, it does seem sort of plucked out of the air. Well, and I suppose with a Spotify or an Apple Music, it's just a music service. And they have deals with the record companies and distributors on the recording side and with publishers and collective societies on the song side. And every month there is a system that they go through. There's an equation that they do and they pay money over and the Spotify accountants can see the money going out and the labels and distributors and the collective societies and the publishers, they can see the money coming in. And everyone can agree on how much money went from the streaming service over to the music rights industry. Whereas with YouTube, the money is coming in and being paid out through an assortment of places because obviously there is content around an artist or a label's official channel, but then there's also money if people upload pop videos to their channels and if the labels and publishers choose not to block it to monetize it and then of course there's all the music that appears in user generated content which the labels and the publishers through content id can go in there and try and claim the ad income that may be generated by that user generated content so there is money being created on youtube for the music industry in all sorts of different places and then it will get paid in lots of different places so sometimes it is being handed over to the record companies and the collecting societies in the same way as Spotify. But if an artist sets up their own channel, 
then the money gets paid straight to the artist. And obviously there's lots of self-releasing artists on YouTube, lots of artists who often don't get counted in the record industry's own figures because they're they're doing their own transactions through a bank camp or through a YouTube channel. And that money doesn't necessarily get recorded in the way that it does if a record company is involved. So therefore, there isn't quite as easy a way of calculating the figure that has been paid in. I did also ask YouTube a few questions, which they've not got back to me as yet, but perhaps they will before the next podcast. Because obviously, also with YouTube, there is the complication of, well, what about Vivo? Because what, what, what usually happens with YouTube is, if you have a straight YouTube channel, whether you are running a YouTube channel out of your bedroom or whether you're an artist or a record company, you set up a YouTube channel, you set yourself up as a content partner with YouTube, and then they pay you what on the recording side, normally it's about 55% of ad income. And then the publishers will probably get about 12%, which will come out of YouTube's share of the money. And that all gets paid over. That's quite straightforward. But if it's a Vivo controlled channel, or indeed in some countries, the major record companies and some of the big distributors have this situation too, Vivo sells the advertising. And so rather than YouTube selling the advertising and then sharing the money with the content provider, Vivo sells the advertising and then shares the money with YouTube for the the, the fulfillment and distribution Mm. of the content. So it's never clear when YouTube does these figures is, well, is Vivo money in that? Is the direct sales of advertising in that? So it isn't entirely clear where that billion comes from. And so, yes, before the RFPI had even got into saying a billion's not enough, (laughs) they were saying supposedly, supposedly YouTube's paid a billion. Don't know how they've worked that out. But even if the RFPI which they didn't. But even if they did accept that, yes, a billion dollars has been handed over by YouTube to the music industry in the last 12 months, well, I think what RFPI would say is, look how much Spotify paid us in the last year. That is exactly what the RFPI said. The RFPI said, uh, with 800 million music users worldwide, YouTube is generating revenues of just over $1 per user. Whereas in 2015, Spotify handed over $2 billion, generating $18 per user. So shut up, YouTube. (laughs) Where's 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 the other $17 billion? (laughs) Until you're handing over. That would be quite a uh, turnaround for for the record industry (laughs) if it was getting another $17 billion. I, I think... Everybody will be very happy again <laughs> if that could happen. So interesting thing there in terms of the RFPI asking YouTube where have they got their billion figure from. You could say to the RFPI, where have you got the 800 million figure from? Because yes. YouTube normally says they have a billion users across the platform every month. Although they've been saying that for a very long time. <laughs> and, and I have to think that YouTube users' figures are going up all the time. But so the YouTube official figure is a billion. So it's interesting the RFPI in essence is saying that you know for every 10 people who use YouTube, eight people are listening to music on it. Now, you could say, well, some of that music is in the background of YouTuber type content yeah. or user generated content or cat videos or whatever. So it, some of those 800 million might not be going to YouTube to actually listen to music or watch a pop video. And very few of them will be exclusively watching music. So they might be generating $1 per user for music. But, you know, some of that money is going to uh, cat videos or uh, gaming videos, or whatever else is happening on YouTube. So again, interesting figures that can be questioned on both sides. But I suppose it comes back to a debate that we've had time and time again on the podcast, and we'll probably continue to do so, because I think this is going to continue to be a big bugbear for the next couple of years, at least certainly in Europe, the European Copyright Directive, which is seeking to possibly revise the way the safe harbours work in Europe, because it is the safe harbours that allow YouTube to operate a opt-out rather than opt-in streaming service, as I said, that means that they have a much stronger negotiating hand when they do sit down with the record companies and the music publishers and do their licensing deals. YouTube has a much stronger negotiating hand than a Spotify or an Apple Music because A, YouTube has already got the content. (laughs) So they're not relying on the labels to provide the content. B, if a label says to YouTube, right, that's it. No more content on your platform. We want all of our content taken off your platform. YouTube will say, well, here's content ID. You take the content off the platform. Good luck with that. (laughs) That's quite a big commitment for a record company to make, even with content ID, which is pretty good, although not perfect. So YouTube has a much stronger negotiating hand, which is how they end up with a much more preferential deal. And the key difference, and we've said this before, the key difference between a Spotify deal and a YouTube deal is they're both revenue share deals. And the revenue share arrangement is pretty similar between YouTube 
and Spotify. However, Spotify have these minimum guarantees in their contract. So every time a track streams, every user who signs up, every month that goes by, labels, distributors, publishers, collecting societies are guaranteed a certain amount of money. Whereas YouTube will say, we're happy to share the ad income, we're happy to give the majority of the ad income to you, the music industry, but we're not paying any minimum guarantees. So if a video plays and no adverts play, Either because, well, often you know, YouTube, unless the content owner forces an ad to play every single time, then generally YouTube only services ads every 15 minutes approximately because you, you don't want a, an ad every three minutes. That's bad user experience. So it means ads don't always play. If it's an ad with a skip, people will skip and then nobody earns any money if they skip immediately. Also... YouTube doesn't necessarily sell enough advertising. So even if you set up your content, the ads should always play and there should be no skip. If they haven't sold any advertising, they haven't sold any advertising. And obviously how many ads you can sell will vary across the year. So if no ads are served, no money is paid by an advertiser and therefore the rights owners, the record companies, the artists, the songwriters, the publishers, etc. earn nothing. And that's the crux of it all. That's what the music industry, they want to force YouTube into a deal more like a Spotify where there are the minimum guarantees. So then that YouTube would be paying a lot more than a billion dollars given the number of streams that take place on the YouTube platform. And that would require a change in the safe harbor rules, which may or may not happen next year. But I think the conclusion is A, this whole debate is going to rumble on for the foreseeable future. But B, the fact that Robert Kinkle was putting this blog post on at this time, it was convenient. I don't know, this may have been a coincidence. The UK Intellectual Property Office, so the bit of the UK government that deals with copyright, had asked anybody who was interested in the European Copyright Directive in the UK to submit their opinions and recommendations and views by Tuesday of this week. So Tuesday just gone which was also the day that Robert King yeah. posted his blog post. So that might not be a coincidence. That might be deliberate. But I suppose the other thing that has happened this year, as the music industry has got ever more vocal about its grievances with YouTube, YouTube has got more vocal with its responses yeah. to the music industry. Whereas in the past, generally, YouTube didn't say a great deal in public. YouTube has started fighting back in the last year. And this was the latest example of that. Yes. So as you say, a story we're very likely to come back to in 2017 throughout 2017 probably but for now yeah no <laughs> no one's backing down no one's I think backing is the conclusion down. so it, it, the bad news for the music industry is this time next year i don't think we're going to be talking about the blog post from youtube that tells you that you've just been paid 18 billion dollars <laughs> for your music that's been played on the youtube platform <laughs> Still to come, we've got this week's news in brief and we've got that exciting news of a bitter legal battle, which I'm genuinely excited about. Even though that's this week's copyright story. Yeah. <laughs> but first, SFX is dead. Long live lifestyle. Yes, fans of electronic dance music, the EDM massive, need to know two things, which is... That your go-to place for EDM experiences is no longer SFX, in part named, well, I suppose entirely named after its founder, in a really sort of confusing way. Yeah. So Robert FX Silliman, who set up SFX, the dance music version of SFX. It was actually an SFX company way back in the day. That's not what we're here to talk about. The new SFX company that he launched a few years back. All that dance music, it is no longer called SFX. He's no longer involved his initials are no longer in used in the name of the company. It is no longer SFX. The other thing you need to know is they seem to be down on the EDM term. Really well. not happy about EDM. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they're bailing on dance music. It no. just means they're bailing on that particular term, which it has to be said. I mean, we resisted it for about <laughs> two years and eventually we got beaten, mainly because of SFX, into using the term EDM. But the all new non-SFX what are we going with lifestyle or live style? Lifestyle. Lifestyle. So like lifestyle, but with yeah. a v. Yeah. Because it's live music. It's a terrible name. <laughs> really terrible name. They're back to electronic music rather than electronic dance music. The D has yes. been dropped. Yes. So are we recapping here? How far are we going back with the recap on um, SFX? I'm going to go back to February. February. When this SFX year. went into bankruptcy. Which was a long time coming. It was a long time coming <laughs> because SFX went through a pretty disastrous attempt to be bought back into private ownership. Yeah, so Robert FX Zillerman, who's had various companies over the years, most of which he's sold for a big profit, 
when he set up the dance music SFX company, he raised a load of money, bought huge amounts of assets, pretty much any dance music festival that was going and various other dance music events and the Beatport dance music download and store. marketing companies and, and ticketing companies. Yeah, all sorts of companies. And then very quickly floated it on the stock exchange in the US and so it became a publicly listed company. And then almost as soon as he had floated it, it was then like, oh, I want to buy it back. And then spent most of 2015 trying to buy it back. And then, well, <laughs> the, the, the price that he was offering at the start of the year to buy it back, the shareholders all said, that's not a high enough price. And then shares tanked. <laughs> and then by the end of the year, the shares were like a few cents each. So when the bankruptcy finally came in February, it, it, it surprised exactly nobody. <laughs> and then, yes, yeah, so SFX has been in a bankruptcy. So with Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, as they call it in the US, ever since then, most of its events still went ahead. Not all of them. Some of them were affected by it. But most of the festivals and other events that are under the SFX banner went ahead this year. Although some of the assets, those marketing companies and ticketing companies were sold off because the SFX that went bankrupt had massive debts. So they sold off some of the assets to raise some cash to pay off some of those debts. They tried to sell Beatport. But no one wanted it. Turned out nobody <laughs> wanted it, so they've still got Beatport. But then they seem to have slowly but surely negotiated their way to becoming out of bankruptcy. And there have been various proposals once they were in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the management team, and there was a, what did they call it? The ad hoc committee of, <laughs> of investors or something. So various proposals were put forward. And once you're in bankruptcy, you keep having to go back to the bankruptcy courts and saying this is the proposal. And ultimately... What has happened is that the, the biggest money lenders who were owed the most money by the SFX company prior to the bankruptcy have basically now owned the company. Yeah. And so they've turned those debts into equity. And then some of the people who were owed less money, a little deal's been done on the side for them. But I suppose the big thing that has happened versus the first proposal for how SFX was going to come out of bankruptcy and the last proposal is A, the old investors who bought shares in, in the company when it was floated basically were ultimately told to go away. And they were trying to be consulted on this, maybe get a cut of the action. And also originally, Robert FX Silliman, pretty much as soon as the company went into bankruptcy, said, I'm standing down as CEO, but I'm going to be still on his chair. I'm going to yeah. continue to guide this company and we're going to make this company great and we're going to achieve our vision. And it became increasingly clear as the year went on that the money lenders and new owners of the company were not so thrilled with the idea. I've used the word thrilled there. Yeah, you did. You should have shouted it. <laughs> we're not so thrilled, in capital letters, with the idea of still having Silliman involved in the company. So basically, they've cut him free. And then I suppose the rumours that we've had, well, there were various rumours over the year as to even if Silliman had stayed on his chair, we knew he wasn't going to be CEO of the yeah. new company. So who's going to be the CEO of the all-new SFX? And then for a few months now, it seemed pretty certain that Randy Phillips, who used to run AEG's concerts business in the US and then has done various projects since then, it seemed likely that he was going to be put in charge of the all-new company. And then the final proposal went before the bankruptcy courts last month was green-lighted, green-lighted, green-lit. Have we had that conversation before? I'm I don't know. a real sense of deja vu about that. <laughs> and at one point, it looked like it might actually take until the new year for the company to actually formally and finally and properly come out of bankruptcy. But then, actually, it happened probably while we were doing the podcast last week. Yeah, yeah, it was last week. So, officially, yeah, officially it came out of bankruptcy last week. And then this week, it has officially relaunched itself so it's rebranded as Livestyle. Randy Phillips is very firmly the spokesman and the face of the company now. They're forging ahead. It was interesting. Uh, Randy Phillips gave an interview to Billboard. Yes, which I think was um, the, the first was, official was the announcement. Of the official announcement. Yeah, we're back. This. And I guess they asked the obvious question, why are you changing its name to something so awful? <laughs> <laughs> And he said, uh, every time I said the name SFX to anyone, I got this negative reaction. People would make the sign of the cross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's not because he could have said, well, SFX is very much associated with Silliman. And so Silliman's no longer involved in the company. So it just didn't seem appropriate to use the name anymore. But no, but... He basically said this is a toxic name. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, to be fair, well, I suppose the bankruptcy was such a long time coming. They had such a bad 2015 and then it took quite a long time to get through bankruptcy. I mean, often it does with a company of that size. And there was lots of rumours going around. And I think, I think he's probably right that the name SFX, not that it was a publicly facing name 
anyway. No. Because obviously the festivals were the front. And then actually, because SFX bought up all these festival promoters, actually most of the divisions of the company were still using the names of the businesses that had been acquired. Yes. So actually it wasn't even necessarily that it was SFX presents the name of the event. It would have been the name of the promoter that SFX had acquired. But I guess in the business, it was not <laughs> not a well-liked company. No. and, and I, suppose I mean, it's not well-liked by a lot of the people who got involved in it during its... Uh, big acquisitions phase. No, there's a lot of the promoters who, who yeah. basically sold either their, their entire business or chunks of their business and became SFX subsidiaries, some of whom subsequently bought themselves out. And obviously the guys who founded the Tomorrowland Festival, which is a European festival in Belgium, yeah. in Belgium which obviously is, is, a, is a very well-regarded, well-known dance music festival. And then for a slightly complicated series of acquisitions, SFX bought the company that owned half the company, something like that. But then ultimately, the people behind Tomorrowland bought themselves out quite early on, actually. Before they bought back of... the Belgian festival, but SFX still owned the Tomorrow World Festival in the US and Tomorrowland Brazil in Brazil. And the Tomorrowland owners committed to help with those festivals. Yes, yeah, so Not SF... that either of those are happening, because <laughs> the, the US one was supposed to happen in September and that was cancelled. And then last week they announced that Tomorrowland Brazil won't happen in 2017. Yes, so although SFX retained the global rights, in essence, to the brand, albeit not the original festival back in Belgium, yeah. <laughs> it's not gone well. It's not gone well, although who knows, they may bring those events back in they, 2018, I, mean, I guess. The, the official, actually it wasn't the official reason, but the reason that a, a source gave on Tomorrowland Brazil was that it was the economic situation in the country that was making it problematic, not anything to do with the SFX. Which might be true. It might be true. You and your doubting tone <laughs> in, in, in delivering that explanation. So we now have live style, lifestyle. Live I can't not say live style for some reason. We now have live style as the new home of not EDM, remember, of electronic music. There are still quite a lot of festivals around the world under this banner and other sort of club promoters. There's still Beatport, of course. And it's interesting, on SFX's watch, Beatport tried to grow. First of all, they launched a streaming service and then they were doing like original content and all that sort of stuff. They had a Spotify tie up, didn't they? And then, of course, once they realised that they... Actually, probably before they tried to sell Beatport, quite early on in, in all of this debacle, they basically shut down everything that wasn't the original Beatport download store. So Beatport now is just a download store. It is still a popular download store with dance music fans, and particularly with DJs who want to download your full cop copies of, of, of sort of the latest dance tracks. Although you have to think, even though Beatport at one point was sort of one of the few success stories of digital music, downloads are so tanking now. And of course, the stats that was doing the rounds this week was uh, last month or last week or something in the UK. Vinyl sales outperformed download sales. So, yes. I mean, that's it. I would think so in DJing, I would reckon that downloads will stay buoyant for longer. I think you're right. Just because you don't want to be relying on an internet connection when you're DJing. Exactly. So and you want to be able to, I mean, Beatport gives you higher quality files for DJing. But that means, in essence, its future is as a B2B <laughs> download store. Yeah. For, for the relatively... I mean, how sustainable that is, who knows. But... Yeah. But I suppose the other thing Randy Phillips did say in the uh, Billboard interview was having sold off various assets during the bankruptcy and you sense having wanted to sell off more assets, you felt that money lenders who were becoming the owners of the company were basically happy to sell off anything that wasn't a festival in order to bring in some yeah. cash to help keep the debts down. But Randy Phillips was saying, no, we're not, we're not in an asset sale mode anymore. Basically, everything that's in the business now will remain in the business. And he was sort of trying to be optimistic and saying, I'm now here to sort everything out and then grow further. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, you know, history is written by the winners and, and currently Randy Phillips and the new owners of the company are the winners and we'll see. I mean, Randy Phillips was made a success of AG Live, so if anyone's going to do it, I think he could make a success of it now and, and rebranding it is definitely part of that. It was definitely, obviously, you know, in terms of writing the history of the company, he was quite down on Robert Silliman. And I suppose, uh, despite being, oh, we're going to fix the company and grow it, he also acknowledged that probably, well, there was two things that he felt that were the mistake that Robert Silliman made when growing the company. First was growing it too fast. And there was that insane period of about 18 months where every fortnight SFX seemed to be buying Well, they something. were buying companies where they'd buy one. You go, like, you bought one of those last week. Did you forget? <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing which Randy Phillips said, which, you know, with hindsight, I seem to remember thinking at the time, is a big part of the pitch of SFX, particularly in the run up to the IPO, 
was it's all about sponsorship. We're going to build this audience of EDM fans through our festivals and through Beatport. And then we're going to sell lots of sponsorship. And I think one of the big ad agencies was an investor in the business at one point. But I did think, is there really that much sponsorship money? And actually, what Randy Phillips said, it was sort of quite a nice little, I can't remember how he first talked about cakes. He said, Silliman sold a story about sponsorship, but sponsorship has to be the icing on the cake, not the cake itself. And I think he's right when yeah. it comes to live music. You know, it's, it's not just that you're in the sponsorship game, everything's free, you, you make the money by selling exposure to brands. You know, there needs to be good ticketing income, good sort of food and drink and concession income. And then sponsorship is there to A, add things to the event, to grow the event, and B, to make a nice little bit of profit on the side. So, yes, he probably over-egged. I mean, obviously, you know, Live Nation, AEG, have big sponsorship teams, and they very much talk up the sponsorship side of their business, but it's just one part of a much wider business. It will be interesting to see how Randy Phillips now navigates through the still challenges ahead. I mean, he's got a good portfolio of festivals, but can he turn that into a viable business in its own right? Yeah, I know he was, uh, so yeah, in his official statement on this beyond the, the Billboard interview, he was saying that he felt that lifestyle has the same potential that AEG had when he took over that, and now they've got no debt, a new financial structure, a supportive board, and that is what is going to make them a success. So we'll cross our fingers for him, but uh, if you're a fan of EDM, you're out of luck. But if you're a fan of EM, yes, all hail <laughs> lifestyle. Okay, quickly time to run through a few other stories from this week in brief. Uh, we talked recently about the possibility of a ban on ticket tout bots in the UK. It's just been passed in the US. It has. All this new regulation on ticket touting, which uh, Andy sort of banned us from properly talking about it on the podcast because we talked about it so much for a few editions. But yes, in much the same way that the UK Parliament is currently considering amending the Digital Economy Bill to ban the use of bots, the software that ticket touts use to buy up lots of tickets off the primary sites. And we already knew that in New York State, where bots have been regulated for a while, and last month they ramped up that regulation, so it's actually now a criminal offence to use bots in New York, so you could go to prison <laughs> for using a ticket tout bot in New York. But what happened this week is that US Congress, so in Washington, a similar new law was passed, and most of the ticket touting regulation that has happened in the US, and there's been various different attempts to regulate ticket touting over the years, has generally happened at a state level, like what has happened in New yep. York State, and there was quite a bit in New Jersey as well at one point when Bruce Springsteen had his little uh, hissy fit about his tickets being touted. But this is a federal piece of law, so it will apply to the entirety of the US. And it actually went through Senate in Congress a few weeks ago, and then it went for the House of Representatives this week. So it's off to Obama. Might be the last thing that he uh, signs off. Could be. Be wary using the bots if you're in the United States of America, and we'll see whether or not it gets added to the Digital Economy Bill here in the UK. Well, that's still got to go to the House of Lords at the start of the year, but that could go through in early 2017. Sticking with ticketing, although primary ticketing, we talked about Amazon's ticketing business we did. recently. Uh, and now Amazon has become the exclusive ticketing agent for a Robbie Williams show. A very intimate. A very small one in uh, a church in Hackney. What was most amusing about uh, Amazon Tickets announcing that they were the exclusive seller of tickets for this little intimate show by Robbie Williams is about four days earlier, Ticketmaster had done a survey of all their users around the world and put out a list of the most anticipated shows coming up in 2017 because obviously Robbie's doing a stadium tour next year here in the UK. And so Ticketmaster were bigging up how Robbie's shows were the most anticipated shows coming up in the next year. And then four days later, Amazon Tickets turned around and said, ha ha, <laughs> for this little intimate show, we're the only seller of tickets in town. Yeah, but I mean, it's not a stadium tour. It's not. And... It is quite a small show. It is quite I mean, it's a, a big show. church, but it, by Robbie Williams' standards, it's a very small show. Generally, churches, even big churches, are not as big as football stadiums. Guevara, there's someone we haven't talked about for a while, have, have had to cancel their AGM, which is unfortunate. So, yes, the uh, Australia-based streaming service Guevara attempted an IPO earlier this year. All went horribly, horribly wrong. They then had to put two of their companies into administration. 
and shut down their service in various territories, including <laughs> yeah, Australia. Including Australia. Although they did then reach a deal with the creditors of the two companies they put into administration. So you might think it'd be interesting to know how they're doing now. They're operating in, in a small number of territories. Are, is there any sign of a, of a financial recovery? One way you might want to find that out is to see when they do an AGM and they report to their investors. What do the auditors say about the financial performance? But it turns out, according to a filing with uh, whichever entity in Australia you have to file these things with, that they can't currently afford to pay their auditors (laughs) to do the audit. So therefore, they haven't got any figures to share. So therefore, they want to postpone the AGM, which we think was meant to take place in November. And they were looking for permission to do the AGM for their investors in the new year. So maybe it will happen in the new year. Maybe we'll find out quite how Guevara is doing. Uh, Certainly, last time we looked, they were definitely struggling, despite having quite a lot of users in certain particularly Asian markets. Returning to another recent story, Duran Duran uh, lost their high court case trying to get their American publishing rights back. Yeah, we talked about the American reversion right that sits in American copyright law on the podcast and whether or not UK songwriters who signed UK publishing deals back in the 1980s, who in theory, if they were in America, the 35-year reversion rights is coming up because it's 35 years since the 1980s now, amazingly. <laughs> and so Duran Duran were basically testing whether British songwriters with British publishing contracts could still get the American rights in their songs that were assigned to a publisher back. Duran Duran felt that it should just be a technicality. It was a given. Fill out a form. Get your American rights back. Their publisher, which ultimately is controlled by Sony ATV, reckoned otherwise. It all went to court a couple of weeks ago. And pretty quickly, the judge sided with Sony ATV. Yeah. Duran Duran uh, predictably were not happy with that. They were outraged and saddened. They also said that they knew there were lots of other songwriters of that era Mm. who were watching this case. And so I don't know. I sense they probably will appeal it because they feel it sets a precedent. Well, it was one of those sort of cases where the Duran Duran publishing contract from the early 80s didn't really say anything about the reversion rights. So the question is, does that ambiguity mean that they should have the reversion right or they shouldn't? But I suppose because the reversion right existed, because it was passed in the US in 1978, at the point the contract was written, that the judge was basically saying the wording in this contract is sufficient that the reversion right doesn't apply, because if the reversion right was going to apply, it should have explicitly been stated in the contract. So what precedent it sets will depend on what contracts other songwriters of the era have signed, the exact wording of those contracts. But certainly the members of Duran Duran felt that it was the wrong ruling and that quite a lot of songwriters would lose out as a result of that decision. Yes, so you can read all of those stories in full on our website. If you go to completemusicupdate.com slash podcast, you'll find the show notes for this show and links to all of them. Okay, finally this week, it's the promised exciting litigation which has already had, I mean, we've discussed on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, in brief, the beginning of this battle um, in which the US radio industry sued Irving Azos Global Music Rights Company. And uh, now Irving Azos Global Music Rights has sued back. Yes. Basically (laughs) arguing the exact opposite. Yes, and technically it's not a countersuit. It's not a response to the other law. They were clearly both preparing lawsuits and it was just (laughs) that the radio industry got theirs in first. So this all relates to your favourite topic of collective licensing. Love it. And the regulation of collective licensing. Love it. And the bloody consent decrees in the US. Oh, I love them. We've talked a lot about the consent decrees on the podcast this year. So collective licensing is where the music industry licenses as one rather than doing individual deals. So all the songwriters and all the publishers put all of their copyrights into one pot and then say in the UK to PRS, you do the deal, you do the license, you go and do licenses with all the radio companies, you sort it all out, you collect the money, and then you just pass it back to us every time our music gets played. So that's how collective licensing works. And whenever you have collective licensing, so all the publishers, all the songwriters, or it happens on the record industry side as well, all the record companies and all the recording artists, when the music industry decides to license as one, it creates competition law concerns because if you're a radio station in the UK, you need a license from PRS to cover the publishing rights, a license from PPL to cover the recording rights. But those are the only organisations that can provide those licences. So if you go to PRS and say, I need a licence, they could say, well, we'll have that $17 billion. We'll have $17 billion. (laughs) And the radio station would go, well, that's not going to work. And PRS could say, well, you try being a music radio station 
with no songs. Yeah. <laughs> and so the music industry could hold the radio station to ransom. And so recognising that in some countries, copyright law provides extra regulation when collective licensing is involved. And so here in the UK, we have a special court called the Copyright Tribunal. So if the music industry licenses collectively and the licensees which is normally a group of licensees, so say it was the commercial radio stations in the UK, can't agree terms, then you go to court and a judge decides. In the US, it's slightly more complicated. For starters, there are four organisations that are all doing what PRS does here in the UK. So you've got BMI and ASCAP, which are the big two collecting societies for song rights in the US. You've then got CSAC, which is smaller, and then you've got Irving Azoff's Global Music Rights. So as a radio station, you need to go and do deals with all four of those. In terms of how the collective licensing system is regulated, BMI and ASCAP are very regulated through these things called the consent decrees. And they're probably the most regulated collective societies in yeah. the world, certainly when it comes to deal making. CSAC sits outside the consent decrees, although various deals have been done and court cases have been filed in the past. That means that when it comes to, for example, setting the rate that radio pays, CSAC has agreed to allow a third party to mediate if agreements can't be reached on royalty rates. So there is a little bit of regulation for CSAC. But Global Music Rights is newer. Yeah, so it was only set up two years ago. And it has a smaller catalogue, a very small catalogue, in yeah, fact. representing about 70 songwriters, we reckon, at the moment. But I mean... But the, the, the top notch. <laughs> big songwriters. Pharrell's in there. John Lennon's rights are in there. So the really big songwriters... Uh, and, and it's a much smaller organisation. And, you know, the reason why Irving Azoff, veteran artist manager, used to be one of the guys that ran Live Nation, but best known for artist management. One of the reasons he set it up was because that he felt that songwriters, particularly in the US, where song licensing is often a lot more regulated in America than it is elsewhere in the world, he felt that songwriters were too often getting a bad deal and weren't getting the royalties they were due. Partly off YouTube, <laughs> his original yeah. battle was with YouTube. One of the reasons he set global music rights up was that his argument was the real hit writers, the people who wrote the biggest songs that have ever been written, should get a better deal. And so I'm going to set up another organisation that won't be part of the BMI ASCAP consent decrees, won't be stuck with the deals that CSAC has done with the radio industry, etc. And we will have the freedom to negotiate better terms. The radio industry, we're not happy with this. No. <laughs> and so, as you say, a few weeks ago, they filed a lawsuit accusing Irving Azoff of building and exploiting a monopoly and holding the radio industry to ransom, basically seeking to force global music rights to accept basically the same deal that CSAC accepted, yeah. which is A, that they would agree to industry-wide rates. So all radio stations in the US who are represented by this thing called the Radio Music Licence Committee... Something like that. Yeah, that's right. So that all members of this rights negotiating committee would get the same rates. And if global music rights and the committee couldn't agree on rates, they would agree to allow a third party to come in and mediate and decide what rates should be paid. Azov doesn't want any of that. He's accusing the radio industry of creating and exploiting a monopoly. Yes, it's an interesting stalemate. I mean, I think, I don't know, we didn't discuss this in any detail before, so I don't know if we got into this, but certainly in our reporting on our website, we have discussed the fact that the use of the word monopoly is difficult in this area because, as we've said, there are four companies representing songwriters. If you can't afford to buy the songs of one of these 70 songwriters that Global Music Rights has, well, there's a lot of other songwriters out there and you can just go and get their songs. Yeah, because I suppose one of the reasons why it makes sense to regulate collective licensing here in the UK, say, is because PRS represent basically everybody. If you can't do a PRS deal, you can't be a radio station. Whereas with Global Music Rights, I mean, it's about 26,000 songs yeah. I think they represent in total. And obviously there are some really important songs of pop history and rock history in there. Having said that, it would be entirely feasible for you to run a radio station and just never play any of those songs. Yeah. And so, in essence, what Global Music Rights are saying is either these songs are important enough for your business that you should pay us more money or don't use them. And that's business. Yeah. And that's the right of a copyright owner. Do the deal or don't do the deal. And actually, it is you, the radio industry, who are being a monopoly because you have this committee 
And it seems to be that global music rights, although they started negotiating with this Radio Music Licence Committee pretty much as soon as they were in business, they've also been trying to do deals with the individual radio stations or the radio groups. And I think the committee are probably saying, oh, you need to do the deal with us. It should be an industry-wide rate. And they're saying, no, we want to do deals with individual stations. And so they're basically saying, it's you that has the monopoly. It's you who's being anti-competitive. Yes, because while there are obviously hundreds and hundreds of radio stations there is only one place you can negotiate your licence with them. And so that's a monopoly, is what GMR are saying. So, as we say, both sides have sued, but it's not that Irving Azoff's group countersued and responded to the Radio Music Licence Committee's lawsuit. They're both suing, they're both making quite bold accusations. And it does seem like, well, certainly the quote that Irving Azoff gave as he confirmed that this lawsuit had been filed seems very keen to take this to court and to actually properly fight this, not to yeah. reach out to court He said, do you want to know what he said? He said, this is the most important fight of my professional life. I will not stop the fight for fairness to artists and songwriters. And if you know anything about Irving Asoff, he's had quite a lot of fights in his <laughs> professional life. So if he says this is a big one, I think he probably means it. <laughs> And it will be an interesting test. Obviously, a lot of songwriters feel that they are under pressure at the moment. They're struggling to make the streaming model work for them. And they feel that perhaps they're not getting as much royalties as they should. And particularly in the US, because you have the consent decrees and the rate courts and various regulations that it's not that they only exist in the US, because as I said, there is some regulation of collective licensing over here. But it does feel like that the song licensing game in the US is particularly heavily regulated. And indeed, the National Music Public Association just a couple of weeks ago, wrote a letter to Donald Trump yeah. <laughs> saying that and saying, hey, Donald, you should fix this. I don't think he will. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but it is true that there is all these rules and regs in the US that seem to make it harder to be in business as a songwriter in the US. And so this will be part of that. It will be an interesting test if it gets to court of, well, what should be the system? OK, if you've got BMI and ASCAP, who between them represent millions and millions and millions and millions of songs... We need regulation. We understand that. But if 70 songwriters form a little organisation and put their 26,000 songs into that pot, well, that's not a monopoly in any true sense of the word. So they should have the right that comes with copyright to say, well, this is our price. Take it or leave it. Although there's always the aside of some people would argue that under certain global copyright treaties, there should be a compulsory license for radio, which is where the copyright law says in this scenario, you are obliged to license at a statutory rate or a court set rate. Actually, we don't have that here in the UK. Although because radio is licensed through the collective licensing system, which in turn is regulated and subject to copyright tribunal, there might as well be a compulsory license, but technically there isn't. If you bought the idea that radio, for free speech reasons more than anything else, should be covered by a compulsory license, well, if Irving Asloff was to push this too far, then that might be the radio industry's next move, to go to Congress and say, OK, let's get rid of the consent decrees and let's just put a compulsory license in law that says that publishers and songwriters have to license their songs at a rate set by some statutory body or some court. So there may be lots of extra complexities and copyright debates to be had, assuming Donald Trump doesn't come in and just shut it all down (laughs) in January. Actually, I would quite like to see Irving Azoff and Donald Trump going head to head. That would be quite an interesting little contest. Yes, but uh, yeah, shaping up to be a bitter legal or possibly two concurrent bitter legal battles. Yeah, you have to think that the judge will try and combine combine these two cases. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to go down quietly in this case. So uh, something to look forward to in 2017. I'm already looking forward to it. But that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Next week's podcast will be recorded after the UK Music Journalist's Christmas dinner. Andy Malt is uh, insisting he's not going to drink at that. So therefore, we will both be super sober recording next week's podcast. It'll be interesting to see if you remain committed to that. uh... I'm very (laughs) professional, as you know. (laughs) <laughs> once the free wine is Last flowing. time I went to that, I did give a quote to the BBC <laughs> having drunk quite a lot. <laughs> but it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. So that's something to look forward to with next week's CMU podcast. Yes. But hey, while you wait for that, why not listen to some of our playlists on Spotify? We've got playlists. Go on there. Search for CMUHQ. Playlists come up. You can listen to stuff. It's good. Stuff that's been in the CMU approved column. Stuff that we've just featured this week. Just, you know, and I mean, the whole archive of of playlists for your listening pleasure. This podcast that you have just listened to before listening to those playlists was presented by me, Andy Malt, and I begrudgingly admit Chris Cook 
It was produced by Matt Peaty. And for more on CMU, go to completemusicupdate.com. Recorded at Unique Facilities, the CMU podcast is an unlimited production in association with Seven Digital. If I press the stop button, will that work? <laughs>